All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. See, that was the perfect crossover of poetry and information. Oh. And I feel I feel fulfilled. I feel like you really drew me a picture, Tari oh. J. Sorry, Tari handed me this list of things to read off yes. at the beginning of the Keep episode. Going. Keep a going. A lot of, no, I'm actually, I'm crumpling this list of, here, this is, yep. we only, we My, could only afford one Foley effect. Right, so it's also, just. So I write on metal paper and that's how you crumble it up. Uh, so, uh, it's more economical, saves trees, uh, you know, not, not, doesn't save a lot of chalk cause that's what I have to use to write on it. But you employ all of those blacksmiths and metalsmiths, which I find very impressive. And like, it's a good thing that somebody's finding them, finding them all that work. Right. I create jobs like the job of being a guest on this show this week. We have, uh, Frank Moran. Oh my word. Hi. I was just coming by and I thought I'd do this show. Yeah, we uh, pulled him in from outside. He was like, oh my gosh. And we were like, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, oh, what about the ultimate crossover between DC and Marvel? Oh, yes. Just like Avengers, everybody. Drawn by George Perez, written by Kurt Busiek. Imagine a miniseries made in 1983 that you never got to see, that you really wanted to see. And then you jump forward almost 20 years and then you finally get to see it on the page. Does it live up to the expectations? Does it exceed? I'll tell you all about it. Hell yeah. That's a, you didn't even have to get prompted to pitch that shit. And it was, it was a perfect pitch. No, it was, yeah. it was yeah. good. Do you do music? Because you did a perfect pitch. Oh, there you go. I get a, I, I'll do my cup song in just a second. Hell yeah. Do you Man, do music? Gone. Yes. What, what, what is the proper like verb? I, you know what? It's not that that's... Uh, objectively inaccurate it's just something about the phrasing sounds confusingly general is it because you have your mind in the gutter is it because your mind is chock full of gutter garbage see i see where you're taking it and in fact it would not have occurred to me to take it to that place it sounds like you've been putting it in that place the whole time (laughs) <laughs> this is Tari uncrumpling the metal paper and reading more of his own uh, horrific, upsetting poetry. Um, so, Frank, why did you decide to bring this to us? You know, like, what do you love about it? Tell me, tell me, tell me about it. All right, you know what, Lex Michael. He's been desperately pleading with me for the longest time to be on the show. You're a hard guy to reach, and your people, man, they drive a very hard bargain. Frank Moran is expensive. Yes. But worth every penny. Well, we'll see about that. The only audience can decide by the end of this. Uh, But, of course, it's something about you really passionate about, something that you love, something you want to share with the masses that maybe they haven't had a chance to be exposed to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lex, during the things that we've done together in our past, I take a more curmudgeonly stance towards things. it's, It's hard to... I'll put it this way. One of the f- my favorite games that I play with Frank Moran is Frank does his best, makes a genuine, 
uh, good faith effort to box me in so that I have to say something negative publicly about the work of others. And so it's me constantly trying to like dodge and roll and deflect so that I can keep things, you know, two thumbs up, big smiles. Because that's how I like to roll publicly. In private, I'm a horrible, vicious bitch, but publicly... (laughs) Publicly, I like to keep it, you know, big, you know, so it was about figuring out like, Frank, can we, can we, uh, uh, divert from your current path? Can I be your ghost of Christmas yet to come? And can I inspire you on Christmas morning to be like, Hey, here's some shillings, go get a big Turkey so that I can feed the Cratchits because I've treated Bob so poorly. And this delicious Turkey (laughs) that I saw there, uh, you know, baked, to a golden brown, basted properly and everything, is uh, this great crossover that everybody's been waiting for. I, I'm a huge, long-time long comic book fan, been reading since I was five years old, just steeped in, especially Marvel and DC, but a lot of other stuff. Yeah. Uh, but there are certain stories that just kind of hit that sweet spot uh, for you, whether uh, depending on the age that you read it or just the impression that it makes on you, the story, whatever that may be. This was a the Avenger the JLA Avengers crossover. JLA gets top billing in this, guys. I'm sorry if you're Avengers fans, it's not going to be alphabetical. But don't JLA they don't Avengers. they trade off right? Like there were four uh, kind of jumbo size issues, and didn't they trade off? Like it was like one and three or JLA Avengers, and then two and four are Avengers JLA. Yes, except of course, like on the collections, like the hardcover, like you brought in the the hardcover edition, and of course it's branded JLA Avengers. Oh, those sneaky. DC bastards. They got him. They got him on the, the thing that you want the most. Like we got top billing guys. Uh, but the reason for this, like if you, when you find something that you love, yeah. you really want to know a lot about it. And the thing that I loved about the uh, Just League Avengers crossover is that it was a crossover that never happened. It was supposed to happen and then it didn't happen. Uh, but, it had, it, but it had been created. Artwork okay. had been done. Stories had been, uh, the storyline had been written, but it didn't get published due to a variety of reasons. So wait, did they actually have this ready to go in the 80s? Yeah, well, they almost finished penciling it. So wow. what happened, it was uh, Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas, they were going to team up together, write the story. George Perez, who had worked on both the Avengers and Justice League, a phenomenal artist, mm-hmm. one, of, one of my favorite artists of all time, just because it's just, if you think of comic books, the panel that comes into my head is a, more often than not, a George Perez panel. It's just full of dynamic characters and chock full of detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was going to be penciling this. So for anybody that loves comic books, this seemed like uh, you know, how could this not win? And there was uh, misunderstandings between the editors and chiefs of Marvel and DC at the time, both Jim Shooter at Marvel and Dick Giordano at DC, that led to this project falling apart. So that w- it became just like a, an item that you really wanted to see, the, the biggest missed opportunity right. for a comic book fan. Right. And it had been leaked that you know, the story had been mostly been written. And a lot of the artwork had been done, uh, at least the pencils and some inks. Yeah. And so then this would start getting published, and it just became this in interviews. It always became like the greatest crossover that never happened. And you'd see things in different comic magazines online where they'd show you pages from this. And it just became like this quest. To, you wanted to see this whole story come together at some point. And for me, it was just like learning about this as a kid that there was a there was a story that never happened that was supposed to about the Justice League and the Avengers. Right. And you could see, it's not just one of those where, ah, oh, we were just spitballing ideas. And then that's as far as it ever went. The fact that it was, a story was written, pencil, pages were penciled, and you could see them. You yeah. could see what this story was. Uh, it just yeah. it just teased you all the more that like, oh, why couldn't this why It couldn't was this the original Snyder Cut. 
Oh, that's right. Dang, which we'll also never get ever. Stop asking for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I had heard, or not heard, but I had read one of the articles that was saying that I guess uh, Jim, whose last name I forget because I'm a professional, uh, <laughs> was very unhappy with the story, but they had already started penciling it. And so that led to more disagreements in that he's like, look, we ha- we I-, I told you not to go forward without my permission, but you did. And they're like, we don't remember. <laughs> um, so then it, that kind of stalled it up as well. And this was such a summation because they, I mean, the first DC Marvel crossover was the Spider-Man Superman. Right. And they did a couple of those. They've done a Batman and Hulk. They did X-Men and Teen Titans. Uh, which I think came actually after the Justice League Avengers kind of fell apart. But they've been uh, doing these variety of crossovers, and so I felt like this is just a natural progression. Like, finally, we've teamed up individual characters, had some other cameos, but this, now we're going to take our two biggest and most favorite teams, and let's put them together. That just seems like the, the best thing we could do. And then to see it fall apart, you're like, oh. Yeah. And I guess it's tougher... I mean, I'm just thinking from a company perspective, because I guess everybody's got to, you have to look out for your own, I suppose, in a crossover like this, where you've got to make sure each each character from each company is getting, you know, the most love right, as possible. Right. Yeah, you, nobody can look like the chump while the other company's team is looking great the whole time. You've got to show equal love. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like that's got to be a challenge. And so I suppose somebody like Jim Shooter, when he's like feeling like, you know, the storyline is maybe not showing my characters in the best light, whether it's story mechanics or I'm feeling like, DC's maybe getting a little bit more shine on their characters than the Avengers are, uh, then that may just mean you, you may decide just that you're going to walk away. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and that speaks to, I think, that the magic trick of being able to find that balance. I mean, in the final product, I feel like they walk that line impressively well, right? Like everybody, especially too, even if you're only focusing on the core rosters of each team, you're starting with, at what, at least 12 main characters. Mm-hmm. And then you also throw in, you know, your your villains and you've got at least three major villain characters in the story and then you have almost every ancillary character you could think of is showing up at some point in this story even if it's only to have a little moment in the background but if you're actually scanning all of these panels especially in the big splash pages where everybody's fighting each other everybody has a little moment even if they have no dialogue in this story almost everybody you can think of has a little moment somewhere in there and everybody like you say like nobody ends up being made to look like a chump and with that many characters to play with that's insanely fucking impressive well especially when you think about if you're just doing a book for marvel or dc or whatever comic book company you're well, we're going to go with those two because those are more <laughs> the ones that you have the more edit, editorial kind of control kind of comes in. Right. But just dealing with that and trying to get a storyline executed and dealing with whatever objectives, uh, overarching objectives that the company's going through. We're, oh, we're all leading up to this big summer's crossover or we're doing this. And just trying to make sure that your story can get told as close to your original vision as possible. But then imagine doubling that up and you don't have to just, you know, appease two company, one company, it's two companies. Right. And everybody that's working at those two companies may be wanting to weigh in on your opinion. I can imagine it's an incredibly challenging thing to try to pull off something like this. Right. It's like when they had both Warner Brothers and Disney characters in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. where the stipulation was like uh, Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse have to share equal time. Things like that where to try to placate both of these companies and tell a good story is near impossible. That's an actual perfect point of comparison, right? Because the logistics of bringing those two groups of properties together is so staggering to begin with. 
And since JLA Avengers, since Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was uh, ways before JLA Avengers was released, studios and, and corporations have only become more and more and more intense on guarding their IP as as closely as possible, which is which is why I think something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, something like JLA Avengers is pretty unlikely to ever happen again. And that's so frustrating because even after this came out, people would talk at conventions to Joe Quesada and say, hey, what do you think about the opportunity maybe doing something with DC again, another collaboration? And it felt like DC was kind of at least open at least publicly, they would say, like, hey, you know, you never know. But Joe Quesada would pretty much just say, nope, no way. Uh, and he would just close the door on that. And so then DC was like, well, all right, if Joe Quesada doesn't want to do it with us, then we don't want to do it with him. So we're not going to do anything either. And it felt like it doesn't have to be as on the hugest of scales as JLA Avengers, but imagine uh, a Daredevil Batman story written by Michael Bendis. Right. You know, something like that, where the talent today that grew up reading all these huge uh, company crossover books and would love the opportunity to do something like that today. It just doesn't feel like that's going to happen now. Right. And it's it's because two corporate entities won't play nice enough with each other. Like even the, the fact that the fact that Marvel Studios and Marvel Television aren't more closely intertwined, the way they they told all of us like when Agents of Shield started, they told all of us like everything it's all connected, right? And like uh, all of this stuff is going to tie together very closely ultimately. And then we saw that that wasn't the case and it turns out it's just because one arm of this company won't play nice with this other arm of this company and so we don't get to see say the defenders show up uh, and fight Thanos with everybody else, which is a bummer. And even with this season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., because last season was all leading up to uh, Infinity War. Right. And so that's when the snap happens. And even at the last season, season finale, they're tying into the stuff that's happening in New York. Uh, all the craziness with uh, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, and all that stuff. So they were thinking, all right, well then, of course, this season that comes back, that just started airing a few weeks ago, it's like, that's going to take place after the snap in that five-year gap. But no, they're just, they've now come back and said, no, 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 this really is still pre-snap and we're kind of on our own little different timeline. And it just really shows that, yeah, the, the TV universe and the film universe are really just kind of going their own directions. Right. Yeah. So I feel like we can't get much further down the line without dropping down the spoiler wall. Like, because uh, I'm, I'm really anxious to talk about some of the gritty, yummy details. Mm. Ooh, baby. Get, get, get a full tit. <laughs> greasy is gr- gross it's gross i'm gonna help us out so so uh so yummy pituitary no i don't know what the fuck is going on uh over there so uh yes we should drop down the spoiler wall pretty shortly but i guess very very generally uh frank could you succinctly in a non-spoiler fashion describe the plot of jla avengers it is, uh, as with all great crossovers you need, uh, they always start off with somebody's from the opposing companies coming to uh, a different universe and kind of stirring things up. So in the case here, we've got people from a uh, villain from the DC universe coming over to the Marvel universe and vice versa, stirring up a little trouble, which leads to our two teams in a contest to uh, collect as many items of, of power as possible, only to find out that it's uh, they've been kind of double-crossed and it leads to these worlds colliding, uh, being converged together. We get to see what that life is like, and is the idea is can they, do they stay in that same reality that's not being forced upon them, or do they fight to preserve their original reality, which 
you know, it comes with uh, pluses and minuses. Yes. And I, I, I remember, too, uh, the, the law that they passed, the federal law that they passed in the late 80s dictates that every time there is a big comic book crossover, uh, they have to include some variation of a universe will die. Every time. It's a law. You can look it up. Yeah. Uh, they called it the... It's universe with like a really big U and I just to emphasize that there can only be one. Right. And then at the very bottom is like the Highlander signal. That's right. I mean, you saw those C-SPAN uh, footage back in there with just those guys standing on the Senate floor pointing at big, large comic book panels <laughs> of uh, George Perez worlds kind of crumbling into ashes. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. Also, also DC very taken in their crossovers with the, the idea of two worlds uh, essentially overlapping and existing on top of each other. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If you can get a panel of two globes just kind of you know coming together and with some kind of crazy cool energy around it, this is the book for you. There's plenty <laughs> of that. It's like, uh, crisis 15, it's <laughs> happening again. Uh-oh, what do we do this time? Can we do what we did the last 14 times? Yes. Well, Great. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and before we get into the spoiler wall, uh, just for people, if you're looking for another reason to read this is George Perez gets finally gets to come back and tell the story that he'd always wanted to tell. So he gets to draw this whole mini series and there for a long time, had been a reputation about George Perez uh, in terms of how productive he could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had kind of, uh, and even admits there like uh, towards the, uh, there's a mid partner's career where he just got burnt out yeah. and it was tough for him to kind of stay on deadline. And he ended up kind of losing a lot of work of it because of it. So, but he really made a concerted effort when Marvel, ended up rebooting their Heroes Reborn line, and they started up Avengers again, and he got teamed up with Kurt Busiek to go in and prove to everybody that he could still hit monthly deadlines. And he ended up doing almost 36 issues, pretty much on a monthly basis. He had a couple fill-ins here and there, but he really showed that he could still do it. Uh, and so when all of a sudden this idea of this this crossover happened, he was tapped to do it, as well as the writer of the Avengers series that he was working with, Kurt Busiek. And if you're looking for somebody to kind of take over from like two, I guess, classic Silver Age writers, Jerry, or yeah, Bronze Age, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas, uh, Kurt Busiek, fantastic choice. Yeah. So many great things that he's written. And even though he really hadn't done much Justice League, uh, he, he had done this great runner of Avengers. So it just, I had no doubts when they said that he was going to be the writer for this, that he would be a perfect choice to pull this off in a really great way. Yeah. So if, if all of that didn't sell you, I don't know what else to tell you guys. Like, what, what what else? What do we need to give you money? Because I'm not going to do that. I ain't got none of that. <laughs> uh, but I will say that uh, it's readily available. You can you can uh, buy it on shelves. You can find it online on different resources in terms of like Amazon. I think it might be also be on uh, Comixology. There's a good chance it's on DC Universe because they purport to have all things DC. And this includes DC things. I, I would hope like, so. I, I do feel though, like that that would be my biggest question mark. Like I, I want to go. Like when I get home, I'll go and I'll check if it's on there. But because Avengers are Marvel, and because Marvel is now owned by Disney, I feel like at best fifty fifty, they're letting that shit go anywhere. That's true. I mean, I wonder if they put it on Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe, then I'd be fine with that, right? But whether they will both be like, yeah, sure, we're willing to share some of our. Exactly. Like Amazon you. is one thing, but to run it on, because also, you know, like DC kicks up to Warner's to, to give it to, to allow it to run on a, a direct competitor's service. Now, I don't know. I'd be curious to see like where, 
what's the what's the dividing line between the rights like is it owned 50 50 between each company or does somebody have a greater share in the book than the other no i think it is split down the middle so Uh, that would get especially because disney's is known for being viciously litigious i'd I'd be curious to see like yeah i want to go home and and check out if it's on the dc universe service well that's one thing i wanted to do when because usually anytime they do a big collection they will do the soft cover uh, and I said, like, no, no, I'm not going to worry about getting the soft cover. But then they announced they're going to do the big hardcover collection, not just including the four issue miniseries that they did, but then all the uh, artists and, and writers' notes, as well as uh, as many of the original pencil pages from the 1983 crossover that never happened, yep. all collected together. So I was like, yes, 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 I, whatever I need to do to get this. So this is one of the favorite things that I will often, at least once a year, I'll come back and read it again just because I just enjoy it so much. That, that reminded me you talk about the big, the big deluxe hardcover edition. Somebody got me a couple of years ago as a gift, uh, the big boxed hardcover absolute Batman year one. Oh, and there's, yes. there's two books in it, right? And it's got all this additional content as well, but there's two books in it. One is the, the new glossy, beautiful paper, like 4k remaster of the original, uh, story. And the second book is, you know, it's it's printed on a replication of the original paper stock, and so all of the pen, the images are a little bit faded because that's how they would have looked when it was originally published. Purely aesthetic thing, completely fucking unnecessary, and yet I I love it so intensely because I guess ultimately I am a simple creature, <laughs> but it is so like yeah like it. it some of these uh, some of the big deluxe hardcover editions of these collected stories can can get a little bit pricey but if you have a little bit of extra scratch to throw at it like every i own a few and every one of them i'm i'm really very taken with absolutely i mean you get the little back all the bonus content in the back uh always makes it worthwhile so i mean to give me a little extra hardcover that i could see uh, a lot of pencil penciled pages of this that i had never seen before i was all excited because i believe according to lore and i think this is rob liefeld bought these original pages. Oh, yeah? Yeah, when they became available. So I believe he has this entire collection. It may may have traded hands since then, but at least as of, like, well, this is probably 15 years ago. That's how I always heard that Rob Liefeld had bought these pages. So if we were to plan a heist, hypothetically, yes. Rob, uh, that would be the place to go? Go to the Rob's house. He's right. sitting there in his jeans, just drawing away. Yeah. And then you go and you just steal these sweet, sweet pages. Ooh. He, he's <laughs> listening to this podcast, and upon your your inquiry, he purchased six more drones Ooh. to guard his house. Well, it didn't work for Nicolas Cage. <laughs> what? Okay, so there's a famous story about <laughs> Nicolas Cage having a... Uh, Potentially, who knows if this is true? But he had like a first edition, like actions comic number. Oh one. yes, yes. Um, yeah. So that was the reference. Is I got was it. saying that I have that, Nicholas. Got it. Oh, I, see. I have it, <laughs> and you can't get it from me, Nicholas. Anyway, like so the, in the spoiler wall. <laughs> Are you? Would you, down would you now. call yourself more of a treasure protector? I would. More of a treasure protector. <laughs> Still, Declaration of Independence. Oh, but anyway, so in yeah. my in my head, Rob Liefeld lives in a castle surrounded by drones. Of course, yeah. Um, so the spoiler wall is down. We've given you plenty of time, and here is where it cuts off in terms of uh, where I'm going to drop all the spoilers in the next five seconds. So you have your chance to reach for the dial. All right, your five seconds are up. Um, I. Yes. Like that we got a shout out to the to the 
crossover that never was. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a um, Rick and Morty parasitic worm style montage where they're like, remember the time when this happened? And remember the time when we were doing this and we get a direct shout out to it, and I, which I like that uh, he was able to do. It also really made me want those stories. Exactly. And it's, if you look at like the kind of like the, the crossovers today, for better, for worse, uh, I, as much as I like Brian Michael Bendis as a writer on many things, as an event writer, I get frustrated with him a lot because it feels like a lot of it is padded out. And the moments that are teased to you is the whole reason this event is happening end up getting prolonged. So example. I say uh, Secret, uh, not Secret Wars. Yeah, Secret Wars. No, not Secret Wars. It was um, uh, Secret, Secret Invasion. Se- yeah, Secret Invasion. Yeah. Yes. So that, the, the, the juiciness of like, oh my gosh, all these other potential heroes, maybe villains, people close to you could have been replaced by scrolls. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So you want to see the, the ramifications on all these heroes and all their lives. And they spend so many issues in the Savage Land just dealing with the initial incident. And you're like, come on, guys. By like, I think by is a seven issue miniseries. And I think by issue five, they're still in the Savage Land. And you're like, holy cow. <laughs> Let's just get to it. Yeah. What is happening? Right. So what I loved about this is that you want to see the Justice League and Avengers and you want to see them meet. You want to see them fight. You want to see them come together. This does not waste any time. Right there in the first issue. We, it's four exercise issues, but we're not wasting time. We're going to set up to quickly establish the two universes, but we're going to get these guys together and we're going to get them you know, butting heads immediately. And yeah. I love that because then it's a chance to see what happens after that. Right. And I really like how we establish the the villain as this like world slash universe ending entity like I, I part of me wishes they would have kept the like amorphous eye blob thing that they had done um but i do like that from the from the very beginning it really establishes that like if you're gonna beat this guy you're gonna need both people to come and do their thing um which uh is a really good way to to start off your big crossover right well, and this villain krona uh, yes. Right. Like all, uh, his goal seems to be somewhat vaguely defined in, in so far as it just seems like he wants ultimate knowledge. Right. And he's willing to just tear through anything and everything in existence to get these these uh, um, uh, somewhat amorphous answers he seems to be seeking. Um, he has some very specific requests. He just wants to know what happens. <laughs> After a Big Bang, or before a Big Bang, or during a Big Bang, he wants to know about creation. <laughs> I know, and but I like, I I really like that his motivation is as simple as I just want to know shit. Yeah, like there is shit that I don't know, and that is unacceptable. So I'm going to tear through all of space and time to try and answer this one question. For what purpose? I'm I'm just curious, really. I'm a curious party. Right. I read all my books. Well, he's the John Hammond of space. Like he's you, you spend so much time wondering wonder if you could do something. You gotta find out if you should. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the movie is so beloved. Is because right. it's a, it's a, the script is poetry. <laughs> Never before or since has true human spirit been articulated in such a grand fashion. Right. Exactly. But like that's the whole thing. Like despite him looking like a like a like a crazy warrior biker, like he's a scientist at at heart. He like, looks like Lobo's cousin. Kind of. <laughs> and what I like about it is it ties back into DC lore. I mean, you look at Krona in a lot of the just the Green Lantern story where he searched for the origins of the universe. 
but led into a lot of stuff with crisis on infinite earths and that led to the big focal point of the anti-monitor wanting to go back to see the giant hand cradling the beginnings of the universe uh to have that tied with the grandmaster who was the big person behind the original crossover the contest of champions the three issue crossover that really kind of kicked off marvel's hey yeah we could get something out of this if we combine all our properties together into an event and so to have those two be like your main villains yeah. was a great nod and and uh, if you're listening and you're not necessarily a comics person but are a marvel movie person the grandmaster was portrayed by jeff goldblum and thor ragnarok uh, in the comics he's uh, taller and bluer yes yes and I, you know i gotta admit i you know jeff goldblum's great but there's something about this version of the Grandmaster that I just love because he's got that that kind of weird kind of like long like robish thing that doesn't really go wrap around. But I love that outfit. Yeah, I also I like that he's more of a cosmic entity. Like in in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's kind of just a dude. He's like yes. a, he's a guy who is kind of sadistic, but ultimately fallible. Uh, right. And like and like you, they allude to the fact that he's maybe thousands of years old, but on Sakaar, he, he looks like Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess the biggest thing, and I'll ask you two guys this, is, uh, and you even mentioned it too, it's like there's so many iterations of both of these teams mm-hmm. throughout the years. Uh, you know, whether it's the Satellite Era, the Detroit Era for the Justice League, if it's the Hydro Base or it's the Mansion or it's Stark Tower for the Avengers, uh, the lineups have changed. Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody, I feel, has their kind of ones that they gravitate towards. So were the two of you kind of happy with at least the base characters? That they had presented as this is going to who's going to represent the JLA and this is who's going to represent the Avengers through the course of the story. Yeah, uh, speaking for myself, not speaking for Lex, though I could. Uh, <laughs> I, I was happy with the the base team. They, I feel like they were, for the most part, the the general team I'm used to. Especially if you uh, are any big fan of of the their individual like animated slash cinematic universes they use like the main core teams with a few extras not extras but um a few that people might be less familiar with which i really liked and i also like that we get to hang out with uh both wasp and ant-man i feel like ant-man gets a lot of love not a lot of wasp love that's true yeah i one of the greatest things they did with the marvel universe in terms of wasp is just make her such a a great leader Mm -hmm. and that's the thing that great character development for her but I interrupt you, Lex. Oh no, I, I was I was nodding. It was a silent agreement. <laughs> it was a it was a yes, but a nonverbal yes. All right, which is useless for audio content. But now we've paused <laughs> so that I could articulate the yes and why the yes was inaudible. Yeah. Well, I mean, in audio audio uh, medium, you have to go mm-hmm, 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 and you have sometimes you have to go preach. That's how it works. It's <laughs> a lot of, ah, uh, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Um, but like you bringing that up, one thing I really liked about this is that no matter what your favorite version of either teams are, you're going to get them at some point. Because yeah. like we yeah. cycle through every version of every character ever in the history of both properties. It's like they were like... We may never do this again, so we're going to have a good time. And it's like that gif of uh, Gary Oldman being like, who do we bring? And he's like, everybody. (laughs) That was this comic. It did. In a way, it felt a little bit like the recent 
uh, James Wan's Aquaman movie insofar as it really did feel like when they were making that movie, they didn't know it was going to make all the money it made. It felt like we don't know that we're ever going to get another crack at this. So we're going to put as much Aquaman as we possibly can into one movie. It felt like this story was constructed in much the same spirit. Like you're saying, it's like we may never and probably won't get another shot at doing this exact type of thing. So let's just put every single little idea we can think of into this story. And it shows because this thing is packed with detail. And that's, I think, probably why issue three is probably my favorite because that's like you were talking about earlier. It's when we get to see these two universes converge and we get to see the Justice League and the Avengers go through at least little bits of adventures and and, re- and recollect adventures that they had undertaken. And just to see the opportunity to be able to live in those scenes a little bit and just see the variety of different casts that would be around for each kind of vignette that we get to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was just great. Cause as you're saying, it's like that one chance you want, you don't want to just see these two teams. You would, as an adventure or a JLA fan, you want to see all the possibilities. And I love that this series gives you that. Yeah. Um, did you, was the, were the main teams good for you or were there characters you switch out or there what? were, I mean, I, I know the original version, it also had, uh, I mean, a couple that I really didn't care about, but they had Beast. And I've always, I love the Beast, and I love the Beast as an Avenger. I'm not a huge fan of the Beast as an X-Men. I feel like the X-Men version of the Beast, they focus too much on him being a scientist. Mm. And they lose that fun version of the Beast that he was when he was on the Avengers team. And, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's probably somewhere in between that you might get, you could get that version of the character that pleases both aspects. Right. But I just feel like... Kelsey Grammer. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. Sidebar on this, uh, <laughs> uh, X Men Dark Phoenix, or Dark Phoenix. I don't even have to say X Men Dark Phoenix, but Dark Phoenix. Again, we get another chance to see the Beast in action, and I just realized like the Beast in any version of the cinematic universe is just I feel like un- underserved because anytime he fights, it's just I'm gonna growl, I'm gonna leap, and I'm gonna slash. Yep, yep. That's it. Yep. That's it. He doesn't do anything. Like if you read the comics, he's bouncing all around or doing this cool stuff, and it's just a leap, a growl, a slash. I'm like. Twice, but both Kelsey Grammer and Nicholas Holt, that's pretty much all we got out of him. Like, he's better than this. Yeah, they just didn't want to break the prosthetics. They're like, all right, you're going to do as little movement as possible. Um, otherwise, your face is going to crack. And he's like, you got it. Oh, and I- then somebody's like, well, why can't we just CG some of this stuff? Dude's like, look over there. You see all that big shit Fassbender's doing with his hands? We got to <laughs> we gotta spend so much money CGing helicopter parts and shit all over this yard. We don't got the money, dude. So just jump and growl and slash. Yeah, it's. I'd rather like, just have him in makeup the whole time. I don't need to see him looking like Hank McCoy, the human. Just let him be blue and furry the whole time, and let's just get a CG version of him doing some really cool acrobatic stuff. Yeah. There was, uh, speaking of Beast, I feel like a, a, and I know this is an Avengers meets JLA, but there was a significant lack of X-Men characters. Like, there have been other X-Men that have jumped in and out of the Avengers, but at no point in any of these, and maybe I missed it, in any of these, like, alternate universes or stories was like Wolverine like hey guys it's me I'm hanging out what, what, what are you guys up to um and and I get because like they also did just like a short cameo with the Fantastic Four it's like they wanted to just nod and acknowledge that they exist but like really focus on your main characters which I get I just wanted more 
X-Men. Well, because I know like Ben Grimm, he was part of the West Coast Avengers for a super hot second. Mm-hmm. And then Reed and Sue joined the Avengers for a few issues and then ended up walking away because they kept on butting heads with Cap too much. Yeah. Like, who's the real leader? Me, Reed Richards? Are you Steve Rogers? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Johnny, never part of the, uh, the Avengers. So that's why you really never really see him show up in here. You've got the original Human Torch. He does show up. So when you see the flying guy that looks like the Human Torch, it's really our boy, the original John, uh, John Jim Hammond, the original Human Torch. Oh, nice. Who's in the West Coast Avengers. Uh so that's why they show up in the book. And I mean, of course, Wolverine, we, it would be great to see him. But the whole Bendis New Avengers era happened many years after this got published. Right. So they didn't even know. But at this point in publishing history, it was just Beast and Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, where you're three mutants that kind of associated with the Avengers. Right. But otherwise, we didn't have a lot of mutant love on the team, which is, uh, I feel like, because everybody kept in like, I've got the X-Men characters. You got the Avengers characters. We can cross over, but we're not... Like, you're not going to have my characters for a while. Right. So, uh, which I miss. I, I, what I do love now is that the it's it seems a little bit more lenient. And I feel like one of the one of the most missed opportunities when they did the Uncanny Avengers for Marvel, they had Rick Remender writing it. And it was, it was cool because the idea was like, hey, we're going to form a team that's made up of uh, equal parts Avengers and X-Men to finally have the reasons like, yeah, mutants are persecuted. Why doesn't Captain America who really represents everybody, why don't we see him kind of really speaking up and helping people? And so I feel like that was a cool idea to see him working with mutants and kind of helping them out in that fashion. Mm-hmm. And it never really lived up to the potential of that series. I was kind of really disappointed in that because I would like to have seen that version of that team to see what they what they could have aspired to. Well, everyone knows that Captain America is racist and he hates mutants. He's like, you're different from me and I'm going to show you... It's That's right, me, yep. Captain America. And, and the right. rest of the Avengers are just like, well, he's in charge, I guess. <laughs> and so they didn't invite any X-Men. Yeah, that's why Reed Richards also left. He's like, you seem mm, ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> well, this does kind of tie into JLA Avengers because they kind of create the idea like these two worlds have, have different, very different effects and they're two iconic characters both captain america and superman so as they cross over to each other's worlds they get affected by those universes in different ways and i have to admit that is probably the one part that i eh, i don't know if i needed that little bit of the story into this i didn't need to see you know superman feeling like hey these people these heroes in this world have not done enough to help out their society or captain america going like they're held up as deities and they want to be worshipped by the people that live here I, uh, I just felt like there was unnecessary stuff to layer on top. Oddly judgmental of both of them. Yeah. Yes. I, I wanted it to be other characters. Like, I feel like those commentaries would come out better either, like, on the Marvel side from, let's say, I guess both of their human, like, genius billionaires. Like, if it was, a, a like, Batman and Iron Man having those two different perspectives like you get it because they're the ones who are over analytical and also pretty paranoid and so like having the because especially because we get it from the gate uh where both superman is acting weird and everyone's calling him out and also uh captain america also acting weird and everyone's like are you guys okay like i i feel like having it be those characters i get that they are the staple of their individual properties so you have to have them being the most like anchored and affected by it, but I really wish it was from different characters because it felt so out of place. Yeah, it, and it's, I mean, I guess you need that, I suppose, in this, because if, if they were act behaving normally, then I don't know if they would actually really fight that we get to see at the beginning of, end of issue one and part of two, 
we see them fight against each other because everybody's like, oh yeah, we could talk this out. We don't need to fight. So I guess by really ramping up the emotions of Cap and Superman, your two leaders, that's going to spur everybody else to like, oh yeah, we'll fight even though we don't understand why and right. we don't and, know what's going out with and, you. And of course, that's always been a staple of superhero crossovers is your heroes always need a reason to beat up on each other a little bit before they realize, oh, okay, we're both being played and we need to team up and stuff. And you're actually nice. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, but like there's also merit in like, yes, those two are uh, are going to try to talk it out, but not the rest of their crew. So it would have been really cool to just have them trying to stop the fight while everyone's just going bananas because they can't be in all places at all times. I mean, they could, like, I guess Superman could super slap and make everyone go back or whatever. But then, like, it's still not going to stop the big splash pagey fun fights. So, like, just having them try to talk it out over the chaos would have satisfied my itch. No, I, I agree with that because, I mean, you do see like Thor. Nobody's really holding back Thor. I mean, he just throws a, he smacks Superman with that, with a, with his uh, Molnir right out of the gate. Like, right. All right, cool. We're down. Uh, so, I mean, I guess when you're talking about this, you got to talk about the fights though. Yes. So, Superman, Thor. Do you buy that uh, Superman beats Thor? Do you think Thor, he should beat Superman? Because he's got a magic hammer and Superman's invulnerable to magic. So, I think that... Uh, like outside of the magical hammer, like Thor isn't made of magic. So it's the one tool that he has that actually works against Superman. So I buy that with like once Superman has his way uh, around fighting against the hammer, he could effectively take out because also Superman heals and all that stuff. Like he's, he's a very quick to recover. So he could effectively wear Thor down. Because when he says at the end, it's like, he was the toughest foe I ever fought. I'm like, man, but you like pretty much died against Doomsday. So, I mean. (laughs) Pretty much he did die. Yeah. I mean, he was in that Kryptonian, like deep catatonic state. Right. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, everybody thought he was dead. So it's like, Thor, tougher than Doomsday. Right. I don't know. Right. Bruce is like, real? Is he though? And Superman's like, no, 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 for real. If he had killed me, (laughs) he would have killed me so much harder than Doomsday. And Bruce is like, all right, dude. It's it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I'll let you have it. The one weird moment of that scene, though, is that the way that everybody gangs up and does a beatdown on Superman after he smacks down Thor, it's like, you don't do this, not to Thor. I'm like, (laughs) really? I mean, sure. It was so weird to like, what is so like about Thor that's like, no, nobody does this to our boy Thor. I'm like, no. All right. He's a prince of some kind. I mean, he is their like comic relief character. So it's like in Justice League, the animated series, how when Lex Luthor killed the Flash in an alternate timeline, spoilers for Justice League, a very, very old story. Um, then the the Justice League became like overlords. It's like the same thing. He's he's their Flash. That's right. There you go. Yeah. And now you know. I mean, I guess you have the Vision trying to drill like lobotomize uh, people that he doesn't like anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of uh, in these giant splash pages that are, uh, take place throughout this series, you get uh, like we were talking about before, insane. Uh, amount of detail and if you look at all of there's no wasted section of these giant frames and you have little stories going on in the background just once you know still images of one character locked in combat with another character and 
uh, Tari, I know you were taken with this element as well because you screen, <laughs> you like took a screen cap and sent it to me. We're like, we need to talk about this. One of my favorite details in this entire series is when the Justice League and the Avengers are fighting each other. If you look, I think it's the lower left of the the two page splash. You see, like in the background, very small. Batman has uh, launched a flying kick at Vision, who has phased, has uh, decreased his density to the point where Batman and his kick just phase right through him. (laughs) And I love that concept so intensely because I want to, you know, there's a whole story there that you could tell about the moment where Batman realizes I'm literally phasing through this creature, what is this? And then spends the next, you know, four issues doing detective work, trying to figure out what vision is and how to take vision down. And all of that is is potentially there in this tiny, it's just one tiny part of one giant panel with all of this other stuff going on. But I was so very taken with, with that. Yeah. Because uh, did you guys read the old like DC versus Marvel miniseries that happened... Even before this, uh, so mid to late '90s, basically is where uh, comic book audiences could vote for who would win in fights, and they had a bunch of title fights that the audience would get a vote on who the winner was, and then they had like undercards that editorial would decide who was going to win those fights. Mm-hmm. So you had like Batman versus Captain America, Wolverine versus Lobo, uh, Superman versus the Hulk, and basically it would just be audience, you know, the the viewer, the readers, would just vote for this, and so. For Captain America versus uh, Batman, they all voted, oh, well, Batman. Of course, it, it became more like a popularity contest instead of like, let's really think about who would win in the situation. Like they had Wolverine beating Lobo, which I don't think that's going to be the case. You know, but it ended up doing it. But uh, I feel like at a certain point, if, if Wolverine and Lo- Lobo are fighting each other, they both just get real, real drunk and pass out. That's true. Like I feel like they both, they pass out taking swings at each other and they... They fall unconscious, leaning up against each other. So neither one of them actually falls, but they're both unconscious. It's like a lean-to, and if you tapped one, they'd both fall down. But right. they're yeah, but they're they're just out on their feet together. I mean, and I do at least like the way they do it. This where they they kind of test each other for a second, and then realize like, yeah, I mean, we could probably beat the other, but it's going to take a long time. So why don't we just put that aside and we just try to figure out what, what's really going on with this? Yeah, I like that. Uh, that Batman at some point is like, let's let these yokels do their thing while we do the real work, um, which is classic Batman, guys. Yes. But I also, because like with Batman, you know that he spent years before he became Batman traveling the world, studying with all these different masters and all these various different disciplines, a lot of different fighting, detective work, all that sort of thing. So you can realize that he's, he's one of the, I guess you could say one of the world's greatest fighters in the DC universe. Right. Captain America is always considered one of the greatest tacticians and I guess one of the greatest fighters, but it's like other than having like training in Avengers, you know, in Avengers manner, I, uh, you know, sitting there in the training room or just everything that he learned through basic training. Mm. Like I, I, there's, I've never really seen stories where it's like, I've spent, you know, three years, you know, learning from the top masters of these different martial arts forms. I've never really seen that. So I don't know like mm. where Captain America's fighting prowess comes from. I feel like movie cap has that a little bit. Like once, if you go from Avengers to Winter Soldier, like the opening of Winter Soldier, you see. I feel like the implication is you could backfill. He spent all of his time uh, when he's not doing missions for Shield uh, between Avengers and Winter Soldier. He's been training from some of the greatest masters in modern uh, 
tactics and combat and soldiery. But yes, I don't think you really have that with comic book cap, at least comic book cap of, of the era in which the story was initially constructed. Yeah. Well, but I also feel like he he has the endurance factor. Like, as as everyone knows, he could do this all day. <laughs> Very um, true. And he also has the ad- additional strength. I, like, I don't know what the strength comparison, because uh, Batman gets a lot of boons when it comes to his, like, how much he can lift and how strong he is. Like, everyone's like, Batman can lift a thousand pounds with one hand and he lifts 500 pounds with his dick. And so, like... I don't actually know how strong Batman is compared to Captain America with his super soldier strength. Like how, how much can he bench bro? Yeah. It's, I mean, for that, we have to go look at the DC, uh, DC, like Marvel universe book. And then the DC universe book where they kind of list all their stats. Right. Which I loved reading those. We're like, oh yeah, these are all the stats. They, they, he can bench. It was always for the Marvel one. It's like he could bench, you know, like a, a truck. You know, or a car. It would give you that little thing. Or then it would be like, uh, like She-Hulk would be underneath uh, the Hulk in terms of what they could lift and stuff. But yeah. mm-hmm. I always felt like he was like, yeah, Batman could lift, or Spider-Man could lift a, a small car. I was never a big stats guy. I always had that moment of, numbers? This shit isn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off with your numbers. But don't you, as a fan, you want to quantify that stuff. Don't you want to, you want to be able to know, like, this person is not as strong as this person because they can only do this much. I only want it in terms of like anecdotal evidence. Like when I'm doing my person versus person battles, I go, well, this person did this thing at one time. So it must be stronger than this person who did only did this at this other time. Um, when it comes to numbers, like it's, it's too finite. Like I don't, I, I want some room for conjecture. True. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I guess like, no matter what the numbers say, there are always going to be the scenarios. It's the Spider-Man being trapped underneath that, wreckage trying to save at may all that adrenaline also makes him lift that tremendous amount of weight when ordinarily if you're just looking at the stats it's just saying oh he can just lift this but right put him in that extreme situation you're right and it changes what he could do yeah. right and the other reason i never got too hung up on stuff like stats is because the nature of comics is such that if you if you're coming to a book that's even a month after a book you read in the same line odds are 50 50 at best that they're just going to amend the power set and strength level to fit the parameters of whatever story they tell. So the stats ultimately they mean nothing. It's just a way for people to like. It's just a basis to argue with each other, which is felt like it can lead to a lot of fun debate and conversation. But I tended ne- never to take that into stories with me because ultimately it's probably irrelevant. No. Every comic book writer <laughs> consults the compendium and is like, all right, well, he can only lift uh, 32 pounds. And so we have to make sure that whatever he's carrying across <laughs> this bridge is 32 pounds or less because people are going to check because nerds are the worst. <laughs> right. Like if you draw a desk that looks like it's made of mahogany, you will get letters saying that like you can't like Batman can't carry three of them. If you had drawn folding tables, he could probably carry like at least 25 at once, but not three mahogany desks. This is bullshit. We're boycotting right. your title. <laughs> and that's what the sub compendium is, is it does all these conversions of like how much people can lift. So it's like, all right, well, once you saw Superman lift a star and so a star is equal to 32 benches <laughs> or uh, I don't know why I'm obsessed with the number 32, but uh, and then that equals 12 hulks, you know, things like that. 
This is the type of shit that Marvel used to give out no prizes for. That's right? true. Yep. But now it's like people are so like, you know, fucking that shit's condescending. We're tired of your bullshit and lies. <laughs> give us money. And the big two have to start writing checks just to retain readership. Uh, and then they fold, and it's very sad. Oh, wow. That's oh, a sad, magic story. A sad yeah. turn. That, that's why Marvel had to sell off all its properties way back when. <laughs> <laughs> what I also kind of liked about the story, too, was that, you know, it didn't. I didn't like it for the fact of how it affected Superman and Captain America in terms of the way those universes operated. But I did like the universal laws were slightly different in each universe. Yeah. So where the Flash had no access to the Speed Force, and so he couldn't really run... Uh, he couldn't maintain his speed right. in the Marvel Universe. One of my favorite, another one of my favorite moments in the entire story, and it's a brilliant bit of anticlimax, but also it's like, you know, you you have a list in your head when you hear the DC Universe and the Marvel Universe are crossing over. You have certain things in your head that, that you want to see, and it's going to be different for every person. But one of the things I didn't know I wanted to see and then when they included it in the story I'm like how did I not realize I needed a moment like this is Darkseid wearing the Infinity Gauntlet but it's a brilliant moment of anticlimax because they're in the DC universe when Darkseid gets his hands on it and it does nothing Yeah, and he's just like <laughs> and, and because the Infinity Gauntlet in the Marvel universe that's you know, much like it is in the movies, like it's the thing. Like once you get all the Infinity Stones, y'all, y'all saw Infinity War. Once you get all the Infinity Stones, you are a being of near limitless cosmic power. So that's the thing that every villainous entity is chasing in the Marvel Universe. Every hero is trying to chase it to keep it out of the wrong hands. And here you have Darkseid putting it on, realizing it does nothing and going, oh, fuck this thing and just literally throwing it away. And there, you know, I admit, there's something about seeing it the way that it was old school Marvel Universe drawing of it, uh, where it is just like a you know a fancy glove. Right. It is not the big metallic big thing that he's wearing in the film, which is cool. But there's just something about like yeah, when he's just throwing it away, it's just like a glove with some really cool jewels on it. It's yeah. like there you go. <laughs> I don't need this. What are you talking about? Uh, okay. But I also like the scene where they're finally making their big storm on uh, Corona's stronghold. They're going to be attacking that, and they have to assemble some sort of vehicle to get them there. And where there, uh, Tony Stark is saying, yeah, I don't know how this is working. This shouldn't work, uh, given what I've known in my universe. But over here, the, for some reason, this stuff is actually working, and we can do this. Right. It's a genius way to, because in comics, obviously, you're dealing with science in big air quotes. It's yeah. essentially, it's all magic. It's all nonsense science. So you're constantly having to find a way to justify the presence of utter nonsense science. And there's a really great, there's a built-in out for that in this story when they're hopping back and forth between universes. Just be like, and even if you're an audience member, right, you have that moment of, well, that shit wouldn't work in the DC universe either. They could just be like, but look at what the worlds are doing. They're smushed on top of each other. We can do whatever the fuck we want to. I, I know we see at the final battle, but there's leading up to it. They do like a, a night before the big siege. And I love the storytelling in this part where it's, uh, where you see little vignettes with the different characters and the panels are basically you're reading down like three tiers of panels on mm -hmm. each page. And the way that George Perez has laid it out where it just, it'll dwell on a couple of characters for a moment and then it just bleeds over seamlessly into another one. You kind of fade them out and you bring in another set of characters and you deal with them for a couple of panels. I love the storytelling and the way that he just moves throughout those different characters, little mini stories throughout those couple of pages. Yeah, and, and even jumping back a little bit before that, when we get 
the both teams getting their basically their memories back of their original realities and uh, how we won that upward shot of all of the different memories and you get to see everyone crowded around Mwah, beautiful um, but also even the specific memories that were brought up were so specific um, and even like so I had also sent the image where it is um, yellow jacket slapping um, Jane Jan. 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 Um, and I, you know, everyone knows that that is a, that's, we don't talk about that. We don't, we don't bring that up anymore. Massive and like, point of contention in the comics, uh, Hank Pym being uh, abusive, uh, yeah. spouse, spousal abuse, spousal yeah. abuse man. Um, but I like the way that they handled it. They, they showed it and then the way that he reacts to it is so sullen and and visceral and and you understand that like even though he has no memory of it like he feels the weight of what he had done and even they get you get that with um Hal Jordan who at some point is traded in like uh, uh Kyle it goes away and is now uh Hal and you're like all right cool keep keep it going um well and also like Wally is swapped out for Barry Allen, who is mm-hmm. still dead. I forgot how long Barry Allen was dead for, yeah. by the way. It always seems Almost like... Almost 20 m- years. Right. Like it, it, In my head, it's like, well, Barry Allen is the Flash, right? But for so many people, it's Wally West first and foremost. And I forget that's because he was he, Barry was dead for like 20 years. Yeah. Um, but but uh, Barry and Hal also realizing, you know, like Hank realizing if we put everything back the way it was, this is stuff that will happen or will have happened. Mm-hmm. And how do we grapple with that reality with, with Barry and with Hal? It's literally, if we put everything back the way it was, we are dead. Right. Because we have died already. And they have that exchange, which is essentially, you know, boils down to it's, it's okay because it's it's about what you leave. It's about you know the good works you hopefully did while you were there, and like well, we did good works, and it's not for nothing. Um, you know we we leave behind a legacy that is bigger than us, and what we did is important. It's meaningful, and we'll find a way to make our peace with this. There, like rereading this, I read it again last night. I was like, all right, I just got to read this again. There's that moment where they are talking about it in that sequence. We're like. Oh yeah, if this happens, you know, my gosh, I can't believe this. And Hank wants to talk about it a little bit, and Jan just kind of brushes him off, like, "We don't have time for this, right?" And I know Hank, and there's like that little sad sack moment of Hank kind of walking away. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, it's you know, we're just it's our emotions. It's just other people are <laughs> sacrificing so much more. I'm like, okay, yeah, wah wah, Hank. All right, whatever. <laughs> the uh, all right, so I mean, of course, we know from watching Avengers Endgame. Yes. And if you've read comics before that, you know that Steve Rogers can hold up Molnir. He's worthy. Uh, we get to see Superman do it. Any any question that's like, of course, if you're going to give it to anybody in the DC universe, Superman should be able to hold it. Or are you uh, still like, no? I was I was on board. If only like I didn't need to think about it any further than the image of Superman holding both Mjolnir and Captain America's shield. The the granddaddy of superhero uh, comic book superheroes. Uh, wielding two of the most iconic weapons in the Marvel Universe. Honestly, even if I couldn't track it with the internal logic of these stories in these worlds, it would have been worth it for that image alone. Right. Like, I could have just as well been like, all right, well, maybe Mjolnir's 
thing doesn't work in this mega space that they're in. Like it doesn't, I just, I also was mostly about him being like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm wielding these dope. And you even get a, a, a kind of a preview of it in one of the, the earlier issues. It's like, look, you, you're going to get this. Um, also I, I felt like, cause at, at, a, at the certain point, uh, Thor throws it and he basically just holds on to it. He doesn't even really like use it. So for all intents and purposes, he could have just been a, a rider on it. <laughs> That's true. He's not really being worthy. He's just itching a ride. Right. Exactly. But, yeah. I also really enjoy that. They essentially, they undercut the need for the question entirely. Like could Superman actually lit? See, I'm stopping because it's an absurd question to begin with. None of this shit's real. What? Um, but, How dare but, you? But within the the established internal logic, like, could Superman really wield it? Okay, we saw it happen. It was a cool moment. Could it really, you know, is that a thing that could actually happen in these worlds? And I love at the end, there's that little bit, once everything goes back to normal, Superman's not able to wield it. And Thor, Thor says something to him that essentially boils down to, yeah, it only happens sometimes. Yeah. It only have like there's a there are some worthy people, but it's, it's mostly me. You know, like occasionally something slips through the cracks. That's what happened. Won't happen again. And so there's no need to explore it any further than that. But that's like that's like where you feel like the writers like we got to justify, guys. We got to put things back. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. But only Thor can really hold this hammer. Right. We, we know that, right, guys? Like we needed that really cool moment. It's that moment at the end of Endgame where Quill's like, "Well, we know who's really in charge," and Thor's like. Of course, of course, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> but like, I could have easily, I could have also just been fine with them going here. Have this back. I'm never gonna see you again. Take care. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I'll never hold this again. So we never even need to talk about it. Right, yeah, that's fine. But I also buy that Thor, Thor, for his own personal gratification to make himself feel a little better, would be like, yes, yes, but. Never again, certainly. <laughs> Let me just put you down a little bit before I leave. Uh, but I also like the same way like where Cap goes, hey, I'm going to be in this, spa- in this ship kind of uh, guiding and overseeing this battle and all strategies. So you take the shield. I'm also thinking like, it's Superman. Does he really need Cap shield? Does he? It's it's just for the image. Yeah. It's, for, it's for the fans. Right. Uh, I'm sure the <laughs> Superman was like, I don't need this shit, but I, but it's a peace gesture. No, I'm going to shit in it later. <laughs> uh, I love, but I love the, the, the idea of a moment where Superman's got Mjolnir and he looks over at Cap before he flies away and he just holds out his hand and like beckons is like, mm, come on. And Cap's looking, he sees he's referring to the shield and he has that moment of like, do you really, do you really need it though? Like uh, you're Kryptonian. The sun actually gives you greater power. Maybe I need it. Like, I've got super soldier strength, but I can't charge myself up via the sun. And Superman just grabs it. He's like, for the fans, flies away. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like capturing me thinking, like, things could go wrong. As much as you, whatever strategy I have uh, in mind to doing this, it's nothing could go wrong. I might, the, the ship could crash. I could be down in the thick of it. Maybe I should have my shield with me just as backup. No, I like a cap. Who's, I mean, I guess that's why he's Captain America, man. Yeah. I mean, it literally appeared back to him when he needed it anyway. It was almost like he had his own Mjolnir because it was just like, <laughs> oh, I guess it's gone. Um, but also, um, I'm I'm really glad that we got that moment where it, it. I feel like we don't get a lot of Captain America calling the shots. And uh, well, we get a lot of it, but. 
I love it. And so I'm glad <laughs> that it was really showcased that he could adapt. Like, I feel like at some point there was probably a inclination to have Batman in that role where they're like, oh man, Batman, he's a strategic, blah, blah. but he's also a lone wolf. He's never going to be in command. And so I like that we got this moment that Captain America got to shine and, and everyone keeps commenting about how adaptable he is and how even though people are popping in and out of existence, like he's able to effectively get everyone where they need to be exactly at the moment that they should be. Um, I, I I feel like you don't really get a chance, especially in like crossovers, to have such a a wonderful moment like that. I agree. That's where Superman says, like, yeah, if we need one person to lead both these teams, it's got to be you, Captain. Right. Uh, and even Batman, when he says, yeah, I, I, I agree. Because I, I think if Batman, I mean, he's been in leadership roles, but I feel like he... He leads by intimidation. Right. And while Captain America is just inspiring everybody to give whatever they can, and he will maximize whatever efforts you're going to give him, he will maximize that to the greatest potential possible. Right. Yeah. So I feel like people are like, yeah, I will follow you, Cap, wherever, whatever you say, I will do. Yeah. Also, Batman would just be, keep going, kill yourself. Kill yourself. <laughs> All right. Dude, kill yourself. <laughs> we got to get him go- Keep. We got to keep him going. Kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to see more of that, uh, the Batman Taskmaster fight, because it's just like, I, I, I got such a sweet spot for Taskmaster. Mm. There's just a lot about the guy with the photographic reflexes. I love that that is a superpower. Yeah. I, I can see you do something, and I can immediately imitate it. Uh, and I, so I've always loved him as, uh, as a cool Marvel villain. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Prometheus, to see him go against Cap. And I feel like that fight also never really quite got what i wanted out of it as well i that's true i I remember distinctly there was one panel where i went oh prometheus is here and then i went where'd he go (laughs) yep that was it all right i mean i guess when you've got so many people you're trying to rifle through in so many moments you know i mean yeah i guess we should be thankful for what little we got i mean if only we had another issue just of that i mean we could have done with less (laughs) of the kicker um, Batrock? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, we definitely, like, there was there was a whole page where he's just like, oh, oh, oh I'm French. Oh, oh, oh mon ami, c'est, c'est, oh, 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 oh. And you're like, all right, can we can we calm him down? Can we do other stuff right now? All he does is just leap. He leaps, that's it. That is all he does. I mean, that's why I liked about him in Winter Soldier. I mean, he, I mean, he was fine in that little bit in Winter Soldier. Right. You got to show Captain America, you know, you got to put Cap through his paces, but then that was it. We don't need to see you anymore. That was fine. And he didn't have that terrible French accent. <laughs> no. Oof, thank goodness. Oh, man. <laughs> um, all right. So we are about out of time. Any ah! last thoughts on this wonderful piece of media? Uh, I do want to shout out one of my favorite elements of the story was the rivalry between Hawkeye and Green Arrow. Which, of course, like if these two universes are going to cross over, that's one of the most obvious rivalries you could establish. But I loved the way... Uh, Clint and Oliver's characters bounced off of each other and I love the way that they they butted heads but also when the teams finally coalesced towards the end the way they were able to complement each other I liked a whole bunch yeah there's just that one little vignette where it shows uh, the Justice League in Green Lantern's bubble at the source wall with Doctor Doom trapped down there where you've got Hawkeye as part of the team uh, that that was probably one of my favorite little little moments in there. Oh yes, and because he's with Black Canary, right? Yes, and you get to see Oliver just seething as they're making out in front of him. Yeah, it's great. Uh, that's the, but that's my Green Arrow. I like that Green Arrow. That's got you know the Robin Hood cap. He's got the little goatee. 
he's you know that's my that that is Green Arrow to me and he's always like hating the the fat cats in the world it's like, mm, yeah. yeah you fat cats what are you doing <laughs> uh, not the Green Lantern every Green Arrow that we got here today sorry Stephen and Mel you're fine no my Green Arrow <laughs> kills people and then he feels bad about it and then he kills more people that's my Green Arrow <laughs> Uh, but I would say, just in closing, if you get a chance, if you've never read this, and anything we talked about is uh, treat it piqued your interest, or if you're somebody that loves comic books for a long time, and uh, this is still a great story. I mean, it's the last big company crossover that we've got between Marvel and DC, and very likely the last we will until Disney literally owns everything. Which long enough timeline we might be looking at until that day. I feel like we're not going to get another one of these. I feel like trying to make something like this happen would just be, there's too many hurdles you would have to clear for it to be worth it for either party, or at least in their perception, I I would imagine there are far too many hurdles to clear. Yeah. I mean, because I think they they would think about like, Oh, how would we make it? it, It's IP that drives their theatrical division. Right. And so why are we going to spend time and resources on a story that we can never really monetize in any other sort of platform. Well, and also, too, it's giving the competition a bit of a bump once they do that. Arguably. Yeah. Because it, because if they're if the comics now are, are, like you say, largely IP to reinforce theatrical, you're, you're drawing even greater awareness back to the Justice League, which, again, is your primary point. I guess it's silly to suggest that anything's competing with Marvel Studios <laughs> at this point, but your biggest hypothetical source of competition... Uh, you're bringing additional awareness to. So I would imagine somebody in the room when that those decisions are being hashed out would take issue with the fact that they would essentially be plugging the competition at that point also. Right. I mean, but it would only behoove uh, DC to do so. And also, I want it. Well, yeah. So. You know, I, I agree it would probably behoove DC to do so. But what is the, if you're Marvel, what is the upshot for you? Then you start converting those other people. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think the biggest hurdle would be just the egos in the writer's room of that, especially because, like, I feel like it's easier to do on paper than it is on screen where you're like, all right, legitimate amount of screen time has to be like five minutes. And this person has to say all the cool lines. And then this person gets to take a hike. Like, I feel like that those will be the, the biggest points of contention, which... But, 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 but it only behooves both of them to, to work together. And then it'll increase the, the speed at which, uh, we get them becoming one entity and everything really bowing down to our Disney overlords. Well, but okay. Yeah. They'll be like, look what we did to your, with your, your property. Now come to us here. Have $2 billion. (laughs) Yikes. But I mean, whether any of that happened in the creation of JLA Avengers, whether yeah. he was trying to serve two masters and then juggling all of that, it never comes across on the page. So Kurt Music, I thought, did a great job that if he were trying to appease uh, notes mandated by each different editorial team, it never translated down here. I didn't feel like I was watching stuff like, OK, this has got to happen because this moment's happening. And so yes. it's got to balance each other out. I never felt like that while I was reading that. And I, I think that's the thing I'm most happy about. Yeah, it's it's incredible how organically balanced the entire thing feels and how satisfying the entire thing feels and how it feels like obviously you get uh, you'll get more out of it if you are very familiar with the lore and the universes and the backgrounds of all of the even the the kind of bit players in the story. But I feel like even if you don't, it's surprisingly 
accessible, especially compared to other big, you know, especially compared to something like uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths or, or like Grant Morrison's Final Crisis, which I would imagine, if you're not very familiar with the DC Universe, would be absolutely impenetrable. I feel like this this story is surprisingly accessible. It feels like a, like the, the blockbuster movie version of what this type of thing would be. And I mean that as a, as a compliment, while also feeling like kind of what it is, right? Like, Frank, the way you put it, it's sort of the best 1980s Marvel DC crossover you never got to read, and then you did get to read it, meshed with a super accessible, almost summer blockbuster uh, accessibility. And if you want to see what happens after the story, Kurt Busiek went on to do a small run on Justice League, which ties in towards, right, it picks up pretty much at the end of this, where you can't really reference anybody by name, but just they kind of like, hey, uh, Cronus in this, you know, this A, this giant golden sphere that deals with what happens with the Justice League and that afterwards. Mm, just it's, six issues of, that was fucking weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just like to imagine they're like, oh, I miss Hawkeye. <laughs> it's just Black Canary pining. Yeah. Just, um, oh, that guy, what a, what a dreamboat. He can use his dynamite arrows on me any day. Woo! Oh, boy. Because they explode and they're arrows. And she has powers, so she would endure it. It's this isn't tra- making it less confusing and upsetting. Come on, this is, Lex. It's getting worse. Anyways, uh, so if you've listened this far, um, I mean, we, we dropped like individual moment spoilers and you have an, a general idea about like what the story is, but I definitely feel like it is something that should be experienced with your own eyes and your own brain. Um, we're going to put some links down in the description in case you want to grab it for yourself if you haven't already experienced it or if you need a refresher and you're like oh man they reminded me of all of my favorite parts um so please partake uh it's definitely worth your time um and while you're at it also make sure to follow frank oh guys follow me on those twitter grams at happy go jackie yeah yeah sure do that i don't know that lex loves that handle I I just I, I so I'm so used to it that I forget what the reference is. Doesn't have something to do with Ray Romano. That, there you go. You remembered it all. A Ray Romano on an old SNL bit. Okay. Yep. I so mean, I don't get it. <laughs> he uh, on an episode of Saturday Night Live, he played a sportcaster that was trying to come up with cool catchphrases. Oh, got it. And one of his was uh, the the black guy goes happy go Jackie like a donkey eating a waffle. Got it. Yeah. So. Uh, for some reason, that phrase and the way he said it made me laugh. And so, uh, yeah, I just happy go Jackie just always stuck with me <laughs> yeah, after that. Okay. I dig it. It's it's it, the story becomes horrible the more I say about it. So just like just I never should never explain why that where that comes from. You just tell people it's part of your secret origin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> one one day you'll get the long fabled issue zero of the Frank Moran series. <laughs> oh boy, yes, great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you, Lex? Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. Awesome. And you can find me at Tari J, T-A-R-I-J-A-Y. But most importantly, you can find us at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. So, you know, make sure to keep hitting us up on this sweet podcast platform that you are using to listen right now. Um, If you want to change it up, we're on all of them. So... Go there um, and make sure to follow us to know what we're talking about from week to week um, and assorted, get assorted articles that we're interested in. Is, is there anything you'd like to plug, 
it's too late for anybody that's watching this now. It's already passed. But every Sunday night, go listen to me talk about General Hospital, the great soap opera over there at AfterBuzz TV. All right. Sure. Why not? Yeah. This coming <laughs> Sunday. Yeah. That's yeah. A yes. Hell of a plug. What a plug. <laughs> sure. Why not? Yes. You're going to be bored tonight. Why don't you <laughs> listen to me talk about an ABC soap opera? There you go, everybody. Oh, man. Good plug. Good, yeah, yeah. Great plug? Totally. Yeah, sure. Uh, awesome. Well, we will see you next week. Until then, this has been the retrospective that's introspective. And now you have a new perspective. Big wink. Big, big wink. But the only reason you have this new perspective is because the worlds are colliding. And once everything goes back to normal, we'll be dead. That's true. Wow. <laughs> we do it. It's all for you. It's all for you, Damien. I thought all... you were a legacy character. That's why I've seen you. Like... No, I'm, I've been dead for 20 years. I died in crisis. Feral uh... lad? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you're all fired. <laughs>